class warfare has been going on for a long time. It's just that the working class needs to awaken to the fact that capital has been waging class warfare against the working class for decades. And what's been so amazing is seeing everyone, including workers around the world, kind of taking note of what's happening in the UAW and seeing, you know, such such an important historical union kind of seize the reins and say, you know, this is not a one-sided class struggle. <laughs> it's a bottom-up approach at this point now that we have good leadership at the top to encourage us and engage us and educate us to do so. And the hope is that it's going to really build our union and the labor movement to, to heights we've never seen before. Hello, my name is Teddy Ostro. Welcome to The Upsurge, a podcast about the future of the American labor movement. This podcast covers the renewed militancy of the United Auto Workers, the legendary union that right now, for the first time in its history, is striking each of the big three automakers at once. That's Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis, the owner of Chrysler, Jeep, and other brands. The Upsurge is produced in partnership with In These Times and The Real News Network. Both are nonprofit media organizations that cover the labor movement closely. Check them out at InTheseTimes.com and TheRealNews.com, where you can also find an archive of all our past episodes. And a quick reminder, this is a listener-supported podcast, so please, if you want to keep it going, head on over to Patreon.com slash UpsurgePod and become a monthly contributor today. You can find a link in the description. We can't do this without you. A lot has happened since our last episode, and there's a lot more that could happen before the strike is done. So in this episode, we're bringing you a UAW stand-up strike update with two excellent guests. It's not completely necessary, but if you haven't already, check out episode 14 and 15 for more context on the UAW strike. There's definitely a little more assumed knowledge in this episode. We are going to speed along to the interview, but just a quick setup. Right now, there are just under 34,000 big three autoworkers on strike in assembly plants and parts depots across the country. The last escalation came on Wednesday, October 11th. The UAW called 8,700 Ford workers at the highly profitable Kentucky truck plant in Louisville, Kentucky, to walk off the job. Reportedly, this came after Ford refused to improve its economic offer in bargaining rather than waiting till Friday to announce the new strike targets, as they've previously done. UAW President Sean Fain and the International initiated what appears to be a new phase of the stand-up strike. Escalations or new calls for standing up won't be relegated to a routine Friday announcement. Rather, they could come at any time. Anyway, I talked about this and more with my two guests, Chris Budnick and Lisa Shu. Chris Budnick is a Ford worker of 11 years. He's originally from Michigan, but has moved around and ended up at the now on strike Kentucky truck plant. He's also co-chair of the Union Reform Caucus Unite All Workers for Democracy, or UAWD. Lisa Shu is an organizer at the Labor Movement Publication and Organizing Project Labor Notes, and she was previously an organizer with UAWD. Chris and Lisa helped bring us up to date as far as the strike escalations, but we also talked about how non-striking autoworkers are participating in the stand-up. 
as well as the truly huge concession made by GM related to its electric vehicle operations. After the UAW threatened to strike its most profitable facility in Arlington, Texas, General Motors conceded to folding its battery plants, which are legally separate from its other operations, into the UAW's master contract with the company. We'll talk about why that is such a big deal. And finally, we also took a step back to reflect on the stand-up strike overall. We took stock not only on what was won contractually, but also on how far the union has come in the past year and where it's going. Chris Budnick and Lisa Shu, welcome to The Upsurge. Hello, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. To begin, can you guys just tell listeners a little bit about yourselves? Chris, we can start with you. Yeah, um, well, I've been a uh, UAW member for 11 years come this November. I've been at four different plants, originally from Michigan. I've been working for Ford, but I finally settled down here in Louisville, Kentucky at Local 862 at the Kentucky Truck Plant. I'm also very active in other areas with Unite All Workers for Democracy, UAWD, uh, co-chair on that steering committee for that. So that's just a little bit about me. So I was also a UAW member. I was a member of the Harvard Graduate Students Union and organized for the local for a few years. And then I was hired as the first staff organizer for UAWD, which is where I got to know Chris. And now I work for Labor Notes as an organizer. Great. Thank you guys so much for those introductions. So the last episode of The Upsurge left off shortly after the 38 GM and Stellantis parts distribution centers, or PDCs as they're called. The 38 of them across the United States were called to stand up. Since then, three more facilities, I believe, have joined the stand-up strike. And I'd like to start with the most recent escalation, and then we can go backwards and work our way to the present. So Chris, I have a kind of packed question for you. We're speaking on October 16th. As of October 11th, you have been on strike at your facility, Ford's Kentucky truck plant. Can you give us a 360 of that plant, perhaps, and explain why it's so significant you guys have joined the fight, what this means as an escalation? Maybe we can start with the basics of the plant. For example, you know, what do you even build? And then we can move on to, you know, why do you think the UAW chose to strike the facility? What's so significant about it to to Ford? And also, please tell us about the feelings, the energy of the membership of you in the plant leading up to the strike, as well as, you know, what it was like when it was finally called and how it's been on the picket line since they went up. Yeah, sure. That that is a lot of questions. <laughs> but yeah, KTP, you know, once I hired in, they always the Ford always, you know, bragged about how much money they make. So I'll get into a little bit of that, but Kentucky Truck Plant, they make the F-Series Super Duty. That's like the F250 to the F550, along with the Ford Ex- Expedition and the Ford Navigator. The KTP plant produces a truck every 37 seconds. And one of those things they've told us just in orientation when we first got there is that, well, back in 2016, they said $15,000 in profit per vehicle that's produced coming out of there. And now it's gone up to like at least $18,000 per truck. And that's every 37 seconds. And they also brag about 
how the Kentucky truck plant makes over half of Ford's revenue in North America, which is pretty huge. Obviously, we can see how much this plant is important to Ford to keep it running and to be able to use that in the escalating strike is a hell of a tool to use. So, you know, leading up to the strike, I myself was doing 10 minute meetings with folks in my department. You know, like I was running four different meetings at one point for a few weeks, like with skilled trades and the forklift drivers, repair guys, and then just the regular production, just to talk about what are we fighting for and give them updates, what's going on and get the communication started, even from my local to them by using our local UAW 862 app we have and signing up, signing those pledge cards, you know, just really just educating and informing folks and just, and even just have a place to talk about something right before our shift starts. And I typically did it on a Wednesday and to promote, to do a red shirt Wednesday in solidarity to build up and to try to put as much pressure as we could on the company and on management leading up to the deadline of the, of the contract. Then my local also, and I helped a little bit with this, with doing practice pickets. We held two practice pickets and we did a rally after the deadline. And I'll tell you, you could see it just in the 10 minute meetings I did, even though they were kind of small. I mean, it, they'd be, it, I would have an attendance of uh, maybe anywhere from 12 to 26 members each meeting, you know. So leading up to it, I, I was getting folks to chant you know, who are we? UAW. And everyone was super excited uh, once the deadline hit. And then once we found out we're doing this strategic stand-up strike where only certain plants are going out, you know, a lot of energy kind of dropped a little, but I continued the 10-minute meetings and tried to keep folks, you know, energized about it and also educated on I wasn't even educated on it. I had to listen to that video UAW put out by the lawyer about how to work on an expired contract. What does this even mean? So it's a lot of new stuff we're learning as we're going. And I tell you, we've only been able to escalate this contract campaign three months before the deadline. And that is a very short amount of time. And I used UPS leading up to a possible strike, right? And their contract campaign, I use them as an example all the time because we have the world headquarters in Louisville, local 89 Teamsters, and we visited their practice pickets. And I mean, we, but I use them as an example to folks in my plant to just let them know like how much they escalated from July of 2022 all the way to July 2023 of their contract expiration. And they got to use all their tools and their toolbox. And well, they threatened that last tool of a strike and they got a historic contract. So I had to explain to folks that this strategy and trust me, I, I was kind of mad too. I was over all three. Everyone's going to go out, <laughs> me personally. But after thinking it through and talking to a few people, I realized we have a lot of tools left because we only got to do a contract campaign for three months or less. So we have a lot of tools to use and we need to use it. And we have a lot of maneuvering we can do with the big three and all these plants we have. So that kind of got folks a little more energized, but there's, you know, there's always not everyone, you can't keep everyone happy and energetic. You know, I think it was what, four weeks, essentially we waited almost four weeks until we were called out and we were called out on October 11th at 
like 5.38 p.m. <laughs> or, or, the, or at least my local president got a call then. I don't know exactly. I didn't get out of the plant until 6.30-ish. And uh, yeah, that feeling was crazy. Like I just, that that butterfly feeling in the stomach and just like getting all shaky or whatever. And I just get out there and the road is just completely packed full of cars. You know, you have 3,000 typically in a shift. And so 3,000 cars are all out in the road. <laughs> but I walk down, see where the picket lines are, see if there's you know anyone doing anything because it was kind of last minute. It was a lot different than getting the two-hour notice. And I ran into my local president and he gave me some signs and he's like, I need you to go out to this special location, which was a rail yard ran by the Teamsters. And we just want to make sure that if they see picketers there, they're going to turn around and, and not pick up any trucks and get out of there. So and I think the energy is still pretty, it's leveled out, you know, and we'll, you know, we'll see what, what happens. I mean, it's, it's fairly new. And if you have any other questions, I can answer. I hope I kind of covered your packed question there. Yeah, no, I asked a lot of you. So thank you. You did a great job. I mean, one thing I'm curious about is you mentioned going to visit the Teamster picket lines. Have you seen Teamsters visiting you guys? I'm just curious about the community support, given just how huge of a plant this is, how important it is, and also just the surprise nature of it compared to previous escalations that were, I mean, they were surprises then too, but they were, it was every Friday, you know, two hours notice, as you said, and sort of an expectation that somewhere in the country there will be, you know, folks standing up, but you guys like smack dab in the middle of the week, Wednesday, all of a sudden it's like, you're going out. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, you know, how community support has been and the energy sort of surrounding you guys. Yeah. Yeah. The Teamsters. And that's one thing I forgot as I was walking out and I walked down through all the, the gates and I ran into my president. I happened to run into the organizer for Local 89 Teamsters and also the communications director. They're already out there with cameras and just helping out in any way they could just to you know get some signs. And they're very excited and they're to support us 100%. Even when I was on my picket duty, the special one, we had some Teamsters come out. And just like, hey, did anyone cross? Anybody cross the line? I'm like, nope, <laughs> I haven't seen anyone yet, or no one's. It's just some supervisors leaving. They locked up the gate. That's another thing I kind of want to throw out there is, you know, we have 11 picket lines with about 12 picketers at each one, doing four-hour shifts. You know, and that's about that's over 700 picketers a day. And so at each week we can basically have 5,000 members on the picket line. That still leaves about 3,700 or 4,000 members that, so there's a lot of folks that are, have a high anxiety of wanting to get out to the picket line so they can get a strike check and all that. But going back to community support, the community, well, there's this New York pizza place. The very first day donated a bunch of pizzas. I got to try some of it. I, I used to go there for lunch here or there. Real good pizza. And then also a big pizza company most recently came out called Bear Nose in Louisville. They donated 60 pizzas, which is really cool. And then along with, I think, Bowling Green, Kentucky, I think it's, I, I forgot their local number, 2164. They make the Corvette. They came up this weekend in support. I think they brought some supplies 
And then I, I heard Spring Hill, Tennessee, the GM plant there, 18, 1853, I think their local is. They're coming up this week. So, I mean, we have, uh, you know, union support. I think the community support is slowly building up when it comes. There's like a small grocery store that offers like 10% off to striking workers. All you have to do is show them your badge, you know. So it's little by little. We're getting some more support. I'm happy to hear that it's sort of building momentum. Moving on, I wanted to go to you, Lisa. Just you've been doing excellent reporting on the strike for labor notes. And Chris just laid out this most recent escalation. But can you outline for us the strike overall from the PDC standups to now? I'm starting with the PDCs because that's where I left off on the upsurge last time. But also specifically on the PDCs, you know, I want to give you space to elaborate on that as well, because I know you've dug into them a little bit in your reporting, you know, what the purpose was and the significance of that specific escalation. But then please bring us up to the present. Yeah, definitely. So let me try to give the overview. So on the first day of the strike, September 15th, you know, we had three assembly plants walk out. The next week, parts distribution centers, 38 of them across GM and Stellantis were taken out and Ford was spared. And then the following week, two assembly plants, one at Ford and one at GM, came out and Stellantis was spared. And then the next week, no escalations. We had a big win from GM, which I think we'll talk about later. And then you know, the following week, Chris's plant, Kentucky truck plant was brought out. So in the second week, you know, I think we saw this major escalation with the parts distribution centers being brought out because these are big profit centers for the big three. So in the article I wrote for Labor Notes, I talked about how the big three make uh, a ton of money off of sp- uh, selling spare parts to dealerships. You know, I think a lot of people know, you know, when they have to like go to their dealership to for some replacement part, the dealership marks up that part. But the big three also makes a huge markup on those parts as well. So for those warehouses to shut down, it has an immediate impact on their profits. And, you know, another really important aspect of this escalation, I think, is that unlike the assembly plants, which tend to be more concentrated in the Midwest and a few other parts of the country, the parts distribution centers are spread out all across the country. You can see this on a map. And some of them, many of them are near big urban centers. So it's allowed, it's brought the strike to many more Americans. And it's also a way for people who support the workers to come out to the picket line if they don't, you know, live near a big plant in Detroit or the Midwest. So those are some of the, I think, aspects of like why this escalation the second week was so significant. Totally. And just to emphasize the part you mentioned about kind of bringing the picket lines to a a broader swath of people around the country, I participated in a canvassing of a dealership here in New York City, where I am. And it was interesting to talk to people just walking by the dealership. You know, they said, oh, auto workers are just in in Michigan, right? They're just in Ohio. And I said, no, they're actually, they're 45 minutes outside of New York. They're in these various different places and you can totally go out and show your support around the country. And I think that's an important thing to emphasize and also a very smart kind of strategic decision 
in addition to obviously hitting the companies where they hurt, you know, in their profits. I think, you know, one of the most inspiring elements I've seen of this strike is what folks who are technically not out yet um, have been doing to support their union family who are. I'm talking about rallies, you know, practice pickets, these convoys we are seeing where, you know, line of Chryslers or Jeeps um, circle the plants. But in particular, something I'm interested in is working to rule, as it's called. Chris, you only just joined the strike, so you've participated in some of these actions. And Lisa, Labor Notes has been among the few outlets actually covering this element of the strike. Can you both tell me about some of these actions by non-strikers right now? What are their purpose? You know, what what does it mean that the UAW president, Sean Fain, has been explicitly calling on rank and file to join in in this way? You know, even though you're not joining in on the literal strike, you you are participating in the stand-up in your own way, you know, with or without the approval of local leaderships. I can start. I mean, ideally, it's good to kind of build these escalations of work to rule and, and, and like no volunteer overtime, you know, before the contract expiration. But if you can, to some degree. But like I said, we didn't really have that time. And working on an expired contract, we got to make sure that nothing is changing. Nothing is changing the status quo so that, you know, and if, and if management does it, then it, it becomes an unfair labor practice and to report that to the UAW. So that's one of the or one of the actions you can take while you're currently um, not on strike uh, and working on an expired agreement. But I mean, from my personal experience, no over no voluntary overtime. I was offered the, literally the weekend before our strike to work Sunday and Monday. So that would have been a double time day and a time and a half day. <laughs> and it was very tempting, but we all stood together and said no, and it didn't happen, which was really cool to see. Work to rule, that's something that's going to have to be educated or, you know, and practiced. And because there's a lot of ramifications for doing, you know, from management when you're work to rule. Can you explain Uh, that a little bit just for listeners, what that means and why that's significant? So yeah, work to rule, the way I understand it is we are given uh, an operating instruction sheet. We call them OISs at Ford. Other plants or GM and Chrysler call it, or Stellantis call it differently. But yeah, I mean, you work to exactly what your instruction sheet says, which are essentially made by an engineer. And But you work at a normal pace while working to the rule, to the exact instructions. And, but part of that is also a job safety assessment. They call them JSAs at Ford. So if you're not working to rule with that, like if you put your safety glasses on your head, but you're working to rule at the same time, you're going to get, you know, you're going to get disciplined for safety. Uh, So that's going to be like a huge, so, and that, and when it's just, if it's just one person doing it on the line, it can create a lot of issues, you know, so there has to be a lot of solidarity and a lot of teamwork to, and it's also a way to make sure, you know, that's something we need to start doing just to make sure that our jobs aren't overloaded in the plant by working to rule. And and because anyone that's kind of going above and beyond, that's just more favors to the company. And then they end up 
adding more work because you're getting it done faster than the previous worker, that type of thing. So, I mean, it's something that has to be in practice and educated to the membership. It's kind of been lost over the last, you know, since tier two has been introduced into the contracts in 2007. They kind of, yeah, kind of got lost there because of that division and the recession and everything. From what I know, like I said, I only have 11 years in, so I hired in afterwards. But from what I, the stories I've been told in the past, and my father works at, at Ford, you know, for over about 30 years now, there's used to be a lot of militancy on the shop floor. And that's kind of been lost over these contracts, tier two divide and conquer contracts we've had. Right. And it seems like you guys are sort of like on the mission right now to sort of build that back up. And especially through your caucus, UAWD, that seems to be the case. But just to clarify something for folks who may not quite understand the logical connection here, it's but working to rule is important because oftentimes at all of our jobs at UAW, um, you know, big three plant, folks in order to do the job, you know, you have to kind of not work to rule, go above and beyond just to get it done. So when you work to rule, it actually times can be an effective slowdown for the company. Lisa, did you want to uh, speak on this as well? Yeah. So I think, you know, we've covered kind of the range of activity from sort of like stuff you would see in contract campaigns that other unions have run like, you know, the practice pickets, the red shirt Wednesdays, the 10 minute meetings, but like this is stuff, you know, the UAW has not done in, I'm not sure anyone knows <laughs> how many years. So that on its own is very cool. And then all the work to rule stuff we discussed. So if people want to hear more examples, they should read this article that my coworker, Keith Brower Brown, who's also a former UAW member, published in Labor Notes. And there are a lot more examples in there about how, you know, like just w- examples of, you know, not making it easier for the boss, right? Not doing favors for the boss. And, you know, one thing you mentioned, Teddy, is Sean Fain is asking workers to do this. And, you know, it's to put more pressure on the companies now for sure. But I think like the strike, it's also about kind of rebuilding the life of the union on the shop floor. You know, that culture of militancy and organization that Chris mentioned that's been lost. So to see that happening across all the plants, whether or not they're on strike is just really amazing. And, And I definitely wish, you know, more of the media was covering it as well. And it's being supported by UAWD. So that's another important thing to know as well. Right. Yeah. People should definitely go listen to the, uh, or rather they should go read that article because I mean, some of them are just, I kind of laughed at some of them. Like, you know, the fact that I think some folks, I'm forgetting exactly where it was, but they use bikes, uh, bicycles (laughs) in order to like kind of traverse the plant because it's a, these are big facilities, right? And you need to get somewhere quickly, you get hop on a bicycle. There's no contractual, you know, a requirement to do your job faster, you know, so folks are just walking instead, adding 15 minutes to like sort of this process that would otherwise go faster. And so I think that was like a pretty funny, but also really wonderful example of this sort of, you know, hey, we're not going to make this easy for you guys, even though we're, even though we're not striking right now. So moving on, I think, you know, I know there isn't that much information about this right now, but there's really no way we can, we can't touch on what appears to be the biggest concession 
by a big three automaker to date. And that is GM's promise to fold in their battery plants, their electric battery plants into the UAW's master contract with the company. And listeners probably have heard about this. Help us understand why this is being heralded as such an enormous breakthrough. You know, what does this mean for the workers, for the union, the industry, the whole nine yards? I want to hear from both of you, but maybe we can start with you first, Lisa. Yeah. So like you said, I don't think we have many more details than, than what you described. But So the reason why this is significant is because um, GM and Solantis and Ford uh, formed these joint ventures um, with non-union companies to produce batteries in the U.S. And they did that specifically um, to find this legal loophole through which they wouldn't have to be covered by the UAW's master agreement um, uh, with, with the three companies. So for GM now to fold and say, you know, this thing which we told you was absolutely not possible is now possible <laughs> now that you're threatening to strike us. It's pretty amazing. So previously, you know, with the battery plants not being under the master agreement, what that means is that the UAW has to individually unionize each plant. It has to go in and hold union elections one by one and then bargain contracts one by one. So that severely disadvantages workers at those plants. So now that they're under the master agreement, they're going to be subject, you know, not that we have the full details yet, I think, but they're going to be subject to the same bargaining that the workers in the rest of the big three are under. And then one other thing I want to mention, you know, I think there's been some back and forth as to, you know, how much, how labor intensive is EV production relative to traditional internal combustion engine production. And, you know, uh, I think what many of us previously thought was that it was about I think 40% less labor intensive or or more. Um, So now there's more research now showing that actually when you factor in battery production, um, in addition to just, you know, powertrain assembly, which is less labor intensive, EV production as a whole may not require less labor. So, So to be able to bring this more labor intensive battery production under the big three master agreement is a huge deal and, you know, it's going to put pressure on Ford and Stellantis to do the same and hopefully raise wages and improve working conditions for battery workers outside of GM as well. And to cite more labor notes reporting, you know, my colleague Luis Leon has written a lot about working conditions in these battery plants and they're, you know, these workers are working with dangerous chemicals. I think OSHA is fining GM's Ultium plant now hundreds of thousands of dollars just because, you know, they because they were non-union plants, they didn't previously have the same protections as the union plant. So, so yeah, so this, this is a big deal. Right. Chris, did you want to talk on this as well? Yeah, I mean, it, it is a big deal. You know, and it actually reminded me of helping Sean Fain campaign for president, we did a little road trip down there to Spring Hill, Tennessee, local 18, 1853, the GM plant. And there's all plants like being built, like different buildings, like all around the entire, you know, campus. And just, and there's a lot of GMCH workers there, you know, just hearing it, hearing from members 
that are, you know, in progression or full on legacy and just hearing how just <laughs> legally divided they are. It's just like, man, we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> so hearing GM to promise to fold in its electric vehicle plants is to the into the UAW's master contract is huge. It's absolutely huge. And it's a factor of now that they've done it and the bargaining, it's like will Stellantis and Ford do it as well? Because I can tell you from Ford's end of things, <clears throat> we have a battery plant being built as we speak in about an hour south of Louisville. And then we also have the Blue Oval City in Tennessee that is uh, going to be like the next generation electric truck. And I think it's important that we follow suit. We have no choice but to, what I'm trying to say is that these companies are going full EVs. They're making promises you know, to the government. They want to be like fully electric by 2035. And they keep changing like the year, 2030, 2035, whatever the deal is. So, I mean, there's a lot of folks in my plant that are like, why is this important? <laughs> why are EVs so important? And it's like, well, you know, if Ford has their name on it, that's our work. That's our work. And we shouldn't let it just go to some folks at a very low wage. We need a just transition. You know, it freaked me out seeing that research done. I think it was back in 2018 about EVs saying that the amount of labor needed for EVs is less, about 25, 30% less. And thank you, Lisa, for putting out the uh, that there's been new studies done that it might take more. So I haven't read into that. It is just so important to make sure that the big three and the UAW come together on that and get all the EV plants under our master agreement so we can continue mainly for a just transition. And as Sean Fain always says, you know, for, you know, social justice and economic justice, thank goodness we have the leadership in the UAW to do it. Right. No, thanks. Thanks for that. And I do recommend to people that they go and read an In These Times article, really in-depth article by Lisa's colleague, Luis Felice Leon, explaining sort of the honestly horrific conditions of these chemical spills, explosions. He digs into some like police reports that I think hadn't been covered before. So it's a great piece. And at your company, Chris, I wanted also to mention that up until this moment, the means through which it seemed the UAW is trying to sort of push up against this turn among the big three to the EVs and to try to use that turn to undermine your guys's hard fought contracts and standards was to give the right to strike over plant closures to the workers, which is something that Ford actually gave up, as I understand it, in negotiations so far, that if they are going to close these plants and then go off to not a, a less friendly union state or even to Mexico to open up some of these EV plants, no, we're going to strike over it, give that ultimate leverage that you guys are using right now across the country. Just to use that to turn you know, that's a pretty big win in itself as well at Ford. But to end, I'd like to ask you both to take stock a little bit on what's happened over the course of this strike so far. You know, the strike isn't over, obviously, maybe several weeks um, still, but who knows? We'll see. Feel free to talk about what's already been won, but also beyond what is contractual, you know, because I think 
I'm talking a little bit more broadly, you know, for one, I think, and I hope that we have already seen a sort of showcasing for the legitimacy of the kind of militant unionism that you guys at UAWD have fought for, this sort of class warfare orientation, perhaps, that is required of workers to win what they deserve. And I think that's hugely important for the entire labor movement. So please, you know, take this wherever you want to take it. But how are you measuring the success or failure of this strike so far? You know, how what has been won already? What is yet to be achieved? But ultimately, the question is, what can we already say about the UAW's historic stand-up strike? Well, first, I think Chris and I organized together in UAWD for a few years before this. And I don't know what you think, Chris, but this has exceeded my wildest imagining <laughs> for how much we, <laughs> the reform movement would be able to accomplish in just you know a couple of years. I think first, being able to elect the whole slate that we ran, the slate that, yeah, that Sean headed up. And then just seeing just what a drastic, I mean, still, you know, incomplete, but so far, like just what a new president and leadership has been able to accomplish. So I think just the story of that is very important. And I hope that inspires workers organizing to reform their own unions. And yeah, I oh, think- Can I comment yeah, on that, Lisa? Yeah, of course. Um, Go ahead. It's, it's, yeah, it's wonderful. And you've done absolute amazing work and we sure do miss you. (laughs) We really do. Yeah. I mean, I just wanted to point something out and I'll let you finish your thoughts. I just want to point out that, you know, it's the kind of goal of reform in my mind, I guess my personal opinion was to, you know, do a top down approach and yeah, and it is absolutely crazy that we were able to achieve that as UAW members and supporters to get that done, which we, you know, for the most part got it, you know, we started to reform it. And obviously we're seeing the the great work that's coming out of it, the great ideas. But now it's a bottom-up approach at this point, now that we have good leadership at the top to encourage us and engage us and educate us to do so. And from the bottom up, and that's where, you know, building militancy in the union to constantly fight a lot harder with the with these companies. And, you know, and the hope is that it's going to really build our union and the labor movement to to heights we've never seen before. And let's do it. Let's go. So thank you for mentioning that, Lisa. I'll let you continue. Oh, yeah. No, thank you for mentioning that. I think you're right. I think what we're seeing in the UAW is, you know, we're seeing sort of some change at the top that is sparking the change at the bottom, which is really the change that we really need to sustain reform um, and the struggle going forward. And, you know, Teddy, I think you mentioned class warfare. Well, the class warfare has been going on for a long time. It's just that the working class needs to awaken to the fact that capital has been waging class warfare against the working class for decades and has sort of quelled, I think, a lot of the militancy and, you know, the ability to fight back. And, you know, I think what's been so amazing is seeing everyone, including workers around the world, kind of taking note of what's happening in the UAW and seeing, you know, such such an important historical union kind of seize the reins and say, you know, this is not a one-sided class 
struggle. <laughs> and I mean, that for me has just been, you know, even though like I was a part of it from the inside and now like just looking at, you know, looking at it a little bit more from the outside at, at labor notes, it's just amazing to, to see. Honestly, surreal. <laughs> I just can't um, emphasize that because this has been such a long time coming. And I think so much is happening so quickly that, you know, I just, I've been like, just truly very inspired watching all the workers in the strike. And, you know, also the way Sean Thane has been leading the fight. So yeah, those are just some of my own personal feelings about it. Yeah, it's been a rush. And and I know you probably feel the same way, Lisa, sometimes it's just like after every type of campaign, you, you think that you can take a little break and then you can't. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you, you don't get a break, Chris. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's a never ending fight. And that's, you know, I always believe in having good balance and everything and things have been out of balance over the decades. The corporations have really built power over the workers and it's time for us to fight back and and have the leadership engage it and educate us and get us where we need to be yeah just union members itself ourselves we need to have to and just workers join a union any workers out there that are non-union i mean your boss has a say in everything in the union you have a say you know and it takes time to to organize and build that militancy, but we'll get there. You know, even in the UAW, very militant, then kind of lost it there for a little bit, and now we're back, or we're getting back. And it's going to be a constant struggle, a constant fight. It's going to be never ending. I kind of like where we're going here. <laughs> I just. <clears throat> Well, I wanted to mention some of the gains, you know. Yeah, if you want to talk about the concrete wins as well. Yeah, uh, cola. <clears throat> cola is a good uh, topic because there's a lot of folks that have said, union members, cola's gone. It's gone forever. We're never getting it back. <laughs> and the funny thing is, it just took one plant, the, uh, the Bronco and the Ford Ranger plant at Ford, for Ford to fold and give us back cola. You know, right now it's just, I mean, I'm assuming it's all in writing, you know, so, and that's huge. And not to mention they're going to go by the 2007 COLA language. It's not going to be some new, improved type of language that's going to basically be half COLA or Coke Zero, as Sean Fain called it. But we really need to look at, I mean, we talked about EVs and how we want our, any EVs that the companies are making that it's under our master agreement that's obviously a huge thing but there's also as a tier two i don't have a pension a defined pension or health care when i retire so for a lot of years i'm not good on all that financial stuff you know but i'm also not going to retire for another 25 years so i mean it's important to me to have a good retirement and but i also saw my 401k drop like 40 grand in 2021, you know, and I've only gotten half of that back since. Um, <laughs> so that's very, I mean, things can happen with your 401k that wouldn't happen with a pension because it's a guaranteed amount of money. So, I mean, those are things that, that are very important, but also getting retirees a raise. They need a raise, some type of COLA to keep up with inflation. So I think it's 2003, 2004 was the last time they got a raise. 
you know, I mean, hell, that's almost 20 years. Retirees have gone without a raise and they need a raise, not to mention legacy union family that are going to be going out and retiring. It'd be nice if they're caught up with, you know, the times and inflation and all that stuff. And I want to make this very clear what I'm expecting on a wage increase because COLA was suspended back in 2009. Um, and these are basically my calculations, but we need a 20% upfront increase on wages just to catch up to where we would be if we had COLA the last, you know, 15, 14 years. Uh, so 20% increase. And then after that, they can, you know, give us, I mean, we got COLA back, so let's, let's get some raises, you know, regular raises to get, get us above the standard so we can set that standard for other workers across the country, you know, uh, union or not. And that's, that's one thing I wanted to really mention and say clearly. So this 10% upfront is not good enough. It's not even close to where we should be. We need at least 20. Well, thank you for kind of going through some of what was won, but also what is still obviously left on the table. And there, there appears to be a lot left on the table, but there's also a lot more of you guys who aren't out on strike yet, technically. So, you know, given the trend of this strikes, given the successes so far, I think, you know, it's it's not unlikely that you guys will be able to win a lot more. But I appreciate you both going into sort of what was more broadly won so far. And your point, Chris, about, you know, winning the top down, but now the fight begins really on the bottom up. And we've been hearing, I guess, a little hints of that in that, you know, uh, we're trying to build the culture of work to rule actions or practice pickets or rallies because this is something we've emphasized on this show before. This is the beginning of a, re a reform in the UAW to the militancy that made your union so historic, you know, and you're right, the fight never ends. Well, Chris Budnick and Lisa Shu, thanks for joining me on the Upsurge. Thank you. Thank you. You just listened to episode 16 of The Upsurge. The Upsurge is produced in partnership with In These Times and The Real News Network. Both are nonprofit media organizations that cover the labor movement closely. Check them out at InTheseTimes.com and TheRealNews.com, where you can also find an archive of all our past episodes. You can show your support by sharing the episode on social media, giving us a five-star rating and writing a review. Follow us on Twitter at UpsurgePod and Facebook The Upsurge. You can also listen to us on our YouTube channel, the upsurge. But the best way to show your support is by becoming a patron of the show at patreon.com slash upsurgepod. We are a listener-supported podcast and can't continue without you. You can find a link in the description. Thank you, of course, to all our Patreon supporters. We could not do this without you, but a very special thank you and shout out to our patrons at the business agent tier or higher. Greg Kerwood, Emile McDonald, Steve Dumont, Jason Cohn, Jason Mendez, Tony Winters, David Allen, Tim Peppers, Dimitri Legas, Randy Ostro, Mac Harden, Timothy Kruger, Nicole Halliday, Ed Laskowski, Chris Schleiger, Corey Levesque, Matt Cooper, Marlon Russo, Martin Omasta, Dennis Hazley, Enzo N, Probably Fang, Andy Grote, and Audrey Topping. All of your support means so much. The podcast was edited by myself. It was produced by NYGP and Ruby Walsh. Music is by Casey Gallagher. The cover art was done by Devlin Clara Resitar. I'm Teddy Astro. Thanks for listening and catch you next time. Thank you.